This technology stuff, man. I don't know. I've got the headphones. We need to go back to. We need to go back to the old days of podcasting, where. No, there is no old days of podcasting. What old days of podcasting? (laughs) I think that's just newsies out on the street corner. (laughs) Yeah, that's called radio. (laughs) Yes, and even then, technology would defeat us. I'm sure. But then you have like people who get job to like keep you in line. True. I don't do well with those people in my life though. There we go. Yeah, all set. I am all set. Look at my ghetto setup. <laughs> That's not too ghetto. I'm literally talking to you out of a, a closet. That's true. So it's very true. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the John Ronson Fan Club. I've decided decided we're just going to go and roll with it and change the name of the show. Just it's it just it'll be easier for everyone involved at this point. I've never listened to it, I've never listened to it though. So you said you listened to two episodes of The Butterfly Effect. Oh yes, 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 yes. That John Ronson, right. yeah, a little slow. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess in light of that, we'll go back to being Rabbit Holes podcast. This is episode 17, and I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And we're very happy to have you back with us. Uh, We are once again utilizing technology to record and do the show for you because Andy is halfway across the country this week. I am. I am in St. John's tonight. I have spent, back on the rock. Yeah, I am home. It, it feels lovely, but I've been traveling quite a bit this week. I've been in Quebec City and Niagara Falls, and now I get to spend the weekend in St. John's before going back to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And I am coming to you from my beautiful walk-in closet. <laughs> Although my hotel room today is not quite as sp- swanky as my hotel room yesterday. Andy had a gorgeous room yesterday in Niagara with a view of the falls and everything. Yeah, it was like right on top of the falls. Yeah, that hotel was in it to win it to get Andy's business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the room was lovely. And they left me a piece of chocolate cake, you know. Oh, those and, bastards. I know. So uh, for Conference Direct, they uh, Anastasia sent me this form you had to fill out. And I felt like I was filling out a dating profile. Uh what is your favorite food what's your favorite pastime what's your favorite sport so i'm sure (laughs) at some point i put chocolate in there because they usually leave you like a cheese plate with some fruit or a fruit basket which i rarely get to eat because i'm not there long enough and it's not like anybody's giving me a knife to peel an apple and not that i can (laughs) peel an apple very well but uh yeah so my first night they had little mini truffles Oh, and the second night they had uh, so the, the Quebec City they had the truffles and the chocolate as the complimentary like we're so happy to have you here's we leave this in your room at night uh, and then when I got back to my room yeah last night it was a it was like a beautiful slab of chocolate cake however they did leave oh. me a bottle of wine so <laughs> did you at least make off with the wine yes I did okay good for you yeah <laughs> Well, that's not too bad. Yeah. Good work yeah. if you can get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I got anything yet, though, from here. Well, as we've discussed, they are not eager for your business, mm-hmm. clearly. So, Although I, I had, mean, they gave you just a I had regular room. a dinner with uh, Stu from Destin- uh, 
Destination St. John's and he was lovely. It was a lot of fun. He's about my age, so we have a lot of the same musical taste. So we spent a lot of time and he's oh. he's uh from Liverpool. Oh. Yeah, so it must be nice to talk to somebody who knows what the fuck they're talking about for music that was recorded after 1988. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like unlike you, no offense. Uh, oh, I unlike me completely. <laughs> oh, I'd love to give a little cultural shout out. Janet Jackson is in being inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Yay. Uh, who else? There was other big names. Was it Jennifer Lopez too? And- no, um uh, Fleetwood Mac, um, Nikki Minaj. No, Fleetwood Mac, like um, Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks, thank you. Whoa, yeah, I know. Sorry. And <laughs> who else is it? The Zombies and uh, Radiohead is the other one that I remember seeing. But Miss Jackson getting her dues finally. How many years yeah. post Justin Timberlake? Once again, fucking patriarchy, keeping us down every chance it gets. Never forget, people. Nope. Never forget. forget. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should probably get into things today because you are a few hours uh, ahead of me. And I mean, I'm heading to bed as soon as this is done. It's been one hell of a week. So you must be looking forward to some sleep, too. So let's get into it i went first last week so how about you go first this week all right uh so originally i had started with a different topic but i was really struggling with it and i was sitting last night in my hotel room looking over at niagara falls and i was saying to dan that i was really struggling so i said maybe i'll do the falls so then i found myself falling down the rabbit holes that is niagara falls Ooh. so here's a basic few basic facts on the falls themselves they straddle the international border between canada and the u.s creating uh, two sister cities niagara falls new york and niagara falls ontario there are three falls with the largest being the horseshoe falls the american falls is the second biggest and then there's the bridal veil which is like these little falls next to the American Falls. Yes. Of course the Americans have to claim they have two. It's It really just looks like one though, yeah. right? There's only like yeah. a little spit of land that separates yeah. them. And they're thinking that that's probably going to, like no one's allowed on that spit of land because they're feeling it's probably going to collapse in a number of years. Right. Uh, so the Horseshoe Falls drops about 57 meters or 187 feet. Uh, while the height of the American Falls goes from 21 to 30 meters because there's a bunch of boulders and big rocks and stuff on the bottom. So that's 69 to 98 feet. The Horseshoe Falls, actually, the pool underneath is called the Maid of the Mist. So it's not just the boat tours. So that, like, and the water has bore such a gorge underneath there that actually the Maid of the Mist pool is, is, is deeper than the falls are high. Wow. Just from the force of the water carving that out over, you know. Millennia. Millennia. <laughs> um, so what was I going to say? Peak flow over the Horseshoe Falls was recorded at 6,400 cubic meters per second with an average flow around 2,400 cubic meters per second. That's a hell of a lot of water. Uh, So the falls are used to produce hydroelectricity with water being diverted and sent down tunnels to power turbines. So the fall, Niagara Falls on both sides generates close to 4.9 million kilowatts. That's enough to power about 3.8 million homes. 
Hmm. And so uh, that amount of water means a lot of erosion. So one year, um, the water was diverted away from the American side of the falls so that they could do some work to shore up some rocks face, rock faces and mm-hmm. uh, cut down on some erosion. And then they blasted the dam and let the falls come through again. <laughs> yeah. When they actually had the American Falls shut down, they recovered two bodies from the base. Ugh. Yeah. So what year was that in? Do you know? Uh, I have a blank here because when I was doing this, my uh, I was actually writing this on the plane a lot of it. Ah. So I didn't have all of the pages weren't loading offline. Got it. Uh, there is a treaty signed between the U.S. and Canada to limit the amount of water that could be diverted from the falls for hydroelectricity. And mm-hmm. it states that there's a certain amount of water that must go over the falls during peak tourism times so that they must, uh, the wording is like it, it must uh, leave a constant curtain of water going over the falls. Right. But still, there's like 6,000 cubic meters going over on, on average. And actually, one of the American sides, they built a new set of tunnels. And in non-peak times, the turbines turn into pumps, so they pump water back up to flow down during peak times again. So it's kind of neat. But the water just goes back into the river below the falls. Right. Uh, I know everybody wants to get to the cool part. So the crazy assholes who want to go over the falls on purpose. Because <laughs> what the fuck? Like, why? Why did someone go, you know what's a good idea? Going over those in a barrel. Yeah, no. Totally reasonable, sober-minded decision that got made, I am sure. So the first person uh, didn't really go over the falls. What he did is he dove off of a platform on Goat Island, which is the piece of land between the two falls, mm-hmm. um, in 1829 and dove into the gorge just below the falls okay did that and survived oh boy and that was 1829 so 1901 the first person attempted to go over in a barrel okay and that was annie taylor taylor she was a 63 year old school teacher so what you're telling me is she definitely should have known better yes so she was doing this uh, for fame and fortune well, th- yeah, <laughs> there's no other good reason. So she planned this stunt out with sending her cat over the falls in the barrel first. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, the cat survived and was fine. And October 24th, 1901, Annie climbed into her airtight barrel with a pillow. And once she was sealed in, they pressurized... Uh, the barrel to 30 PSI with a bicycle pump. So they <laughs> pressed the air. And then Anne, they flew her over the, the gorge. Annie survived the fall with a few cuts and bruises. She's quoted as saying, no one should ever try that again. <laughs> uh, Annie, I could have told you that before you tried it. <laughs> and sadly, her quest for fame and fortune did not pan out because she died in poverty. At the age of 82. She is um, buried in a cemetery in New York, in Niagara Falls, New York. And and I believe the cemetery is named Oakwood, which is what I wrote down. And they actually have a section of the cemetery that's dubbed the Stunter's Rest. Because she's (laughs) there and then a couple of other people that I think we'll talk about uh, are in there as well. 
including a guy who attend who was I think the first person to swim the English Channel. Mm-hmm. And then he tried swimming uh, the rapids just below the falls, and he died. So that's where he's also buried. I'm going to guess that a lot of the people that ended up buried there for doing stupid shit around the falls, wild speculation, they're Americans. We don't get to a Canadian for a while. Yeah, there's there's a there good many is. years till we get to a Canadian who's like, I'm going to go over the falls in a fucking barrel. And I'll bet you there's probably more Floridians than Canadians involved in the story. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Although I I did originally call this they could have been from Florida. I'm not kidding you. That's know. what the story was called. <laughs> the next official attempt was in 1911 when Bobby Leach plunged over the falls in a steel barrel. Bobby broke both kneecaps and his jaw during the stunt but survived. Only for years later while touring in New Zealand... He slipped on an orange peel and died from complications due to gangrene. <laughs> That's we shouldn't like some... laugh. That's terrible, that but is... ironic. But that is like some final destination shit. Like, <laughs> he survived death from going over Niagara Falls, but died because he fell on a fucking orange peel. You should never try to cheat death. It always finds you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the next one is kind of sad. Uh, 1920, an Englishman named Charles G. Stevens equipped his barrel with an anvil for ballast. Dummy, okay, but yeah, all right. So I'm going to put myself into a barrel with a very heavy, sharp, pointy object and throw myself off the falls. This is going to end well. And then he tied himself to the anvil for safety. Oh my god! Social Darwinism! Poor life choice alert! Oh my god. His family and friends tried to talk him out of it. They tried to to get him to test the barrel with the anvil first, but he didn't. Uh, So he went over um, the falls. The only thing left in the barrel was his right arm, and they never found his body. Oh my god, that is so creepy! Yeah, the anvil went out of the barrel and took him with it. Yeah, <laughs> not surprised at all. <laughs> yes, so the arm was left in the safety harness, and that's all they found. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> in 1928, Smiling John, sorry, Smiling Jean Lesser survived the trip over in a large rubber ball. Don't really know anything else about that one. Hmm. But he did survive, and he was in a giant rubber ball. In 1930, a Greek waiter named George... Serdakis suffocated to death after his barrel was trapped beneath the falls for more than 14 hours. Yikes. The barrel had eight hours of air, but it took 14 hours for the barrel to pop out from like behind the falls. Oh my God. Um, he had with him, he took with him in the barrel his pet tortoise. Oh. Which was, a hun- they think, about 140 years old at the time. The tortoise survived. <laughs> he did not. Those things are hard to kill. In 1951, William Reed, William Red Hill Jr., who I love the article I was reading, said, the son of William Red Hill Sr. No shit. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. Went over the falls in a contraption he called the thing. It broke apart on impact and his body was found the next day. Hmm. In 1961, Nathan Boya took a trip in a... 
contraption that almost looked like a Star Wars robot. Okay. And then the first Canadian to try the stunt wasn't until 1984. So somewhere between the 60s and the 80s, I think they actually made this illegal. Yeah. Um, so the first Canadian to try the stunt was Carl Soduk. He survived the fall in his barrel, but died in Houston while trying to recreate the stunt on the in the Astrodome. The barrel was raised to the ceiling of the Astrodome and dropped into a, a, a giant tank of water. Uh-huh. However, the barrel... Uh, released early started to spin as it fell and then hit the side of the tank oh carl survived the fall but died in hospital while the stunt show was still going on so he died like within the hour yikes i was gonna say like it's completely different in the astrodome than actually at niagara because at niagara the water's being aerated so it's like when you're, you watch the diving competitions, they have that little jet of water going to where the divers are going to hit the water. That's to break the surface tension. So the surface tension is completely non-existent at the falls where it's constantly being aerated versus just being lobbed into a giant pool of water. Did no one think that through? <laughs> but is he? it didn't matter. He hit the side. Yeah, but like even if it had gone perfectly yeah. well, he probably still would have been hit by the, the shot. I don't know. Yeah. But Evil Knievel himself tried to talk Carl out of this stunt. <laughs> quoting, it was the most dangerous stunt he'd ever seen. Okay, well, when Evil Knievel is telling you to smarten up, like, you need oh, to reevaluate sh- your life choices. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in August of eight, 19, in August of 1985, a road island bartender named Steve Trotter made the trip in a barrel oh no yes and the barrel wrapped in inner tubes okay so he wrapped himself in inner tubes got into his barrel Steve was fined $5,503 for performing the stunt (laughs) without a permit (laughs) I mean who gets issued permits for this like what do you put in the application that would like make an official go you know what yeah this this seems like a good idea Let's let's let you do that. We have no problem with wasting the resources we're gonna have to spend to haul your dumbass out of the sink. Like, <laughs> come on. Well, like the the process that uh, the Walenda guy went to tight w- walk across was quite intense. Right. Like, Rightly so. <laughs> yes. Um, so in so this was 1985. So uh, 1984, someone went over. 1985, in August, someone went over. And in October of 1985, someone else also went over. What was so happening this... in the world that everyone thought this was a good idea? <laughs> my, my note is, Jesus, this was popular in the 80s. <laughs> it's like the cults era of the 90s. Like, this is the I opposite know. side of the 80s. A Canadian mechanic, John Mundy, made a successful trip in his barrel then in 1989 okay two niagara falls ontario residents peter de burndy and jeffrey james padowski went down as the first human duo to descend the falls in a barrel (laughs) a lot of these people do it in a barrel i really want to know what Um, the conversation was as they went over dude (laughs) what were their names again uh peter and jeffrey like hey pete 
Pete, maybe we should have rethought this. I know, Jeff, <laughs> but what are we going to do? Pete, I don't know, but I'm really regretting this. Jeff, we need to make better choices once we get out of this pickle. <laughs> Poor life choices. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so in 1993, John from 1985 came back to go over the falls again. So he had a death wish. That's what I'm understanding. Mm, he did it, and but survived twice. In 1995, Steve Trotter came back again. So also back to redo this, but this time he returned with a partner, <sighs> Lori Martin. She was a caterer. Steve and Lori went down as the first male-female duo to go over and to make the big drop together. Mm -hmm. And she was the second woman to do it. Because women got smart after that first one, I guess. I mean, I think it was always going to be fewer women were going to do something this dumb. <laughs> but it was the first one. Like, way to go feminism? I don't know. The first person to do this was a woman. Well, we all learned the lesson off of that broad and knew that this was a really stupid thing to do. Or just someone already did it. Like, why am I going to go? Recreate? It's like Everest. Like, I love the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Like, it is such a good read for, like, exercise and outdoor stuff. When you think of me, you do not link me to exercise. Nor No, no, not at all. But, like, this book is amazing. And it's about a really bad season up on Everest where, like, 90% of the people who tried the climb that year died. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, like, we've already gone up there. John Mallory did it first, so really we don't shouldn't have had to have gone back. And then some schmuck took a camera up there and took pictures. So what more are we going up there for? We know what it looks like. Done. Yeah. <laughs> this is the same principle. We've done it. We have the surviving stories. Just stop now. <laughs> so later in 1995, Robert Overcracker <laughs> rode a jet ski over the brink to promote awareness for the homeless. Uh... Sadly... His parachute did not open, and he uh, plummeted to his death. They never recovered his body. So instead of promoting, you know, raising awareness for homelessness, he really just raised awareness for better parachutes. Uh, and better life choices, once again. And also better life we need to have t-shirts made that say that. <laughs> just save everyone a lot of time. Just, just make better choices, people. Yeah. Love each other and make better choices. <laughs> Uh, so the most recent person is to go over the falls, at least I, I, as far as I can tell, is 2003. Hmm. This guy was crazy. Uh, so unlike the rest of them, he didn't do it in a barrel or a ball. He just did it with the clothes he was wearing. Was it a conscious choice that he made or was it an accident? So I'll get into that. <laughs> so he had this idea and worked on the plan for a number of years. Mm -hmm. oh boy but while on a trip with a friend he decided to bite the bullet and they picked up a used video camera to so that they could record this like massively historical event kirk entered the water about a hundred yards upstream and started to swim out to the swift current eight seconds later he made the 175 foot fall then he swam to shore passing up a ride on the maid of the mist tour boat he was treated, yeah, he was treated for minor bumps and bruises and fined $2,300 and is now banned from entering Canada ever. He's a vampire. That's the only explanation. You cannot kill him. He is an immortal and you he just cannot die. So the kicker of this story was, so uh, not shocking, him and his buddies were drinking before they did this. Of course. But 
uh, his friends couldn't figure out how to use the video camera, so mm. they actually didn't record it. No! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> That's what you get. You do something dumb, and this is what you get in exchange for that. <laughs> so those are all the people who went over... Although, sorry, I've got to find one more. I didn't have his information in my sheet but there is one more that was kind of crazy so in 1990 uh, Jesse Sharp went over the falls in a whitewater canoe he intended to continue paddling downriver after the fall and had made dinner reservations at a restaurant in Lewiston four miles downstream after beginning the plunge he quickly disappeared into the falls and though his kayak was later found his body was never recovered yikes he decided not to wear a life jacket. Smart. Clearly not picking up the tips that Twiggy the Squirrel taught us last week about water safety. No. In case it impeded an escape should he get trapped under the falls. And he refused to wear a helmet in order to keep his face recognizable to cameras. I was going to say, like, it's the same reason I won't wear a helmet when I bike because it's not cool looking. Basically, it's the same thing happening here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I... I See, I knew I forgot one one. So Kirk Jones, which is the dude in 2003 that survived going over in nothing. Yep. He, in 2017, in April, he tried to go over the falls again inside of, inf inside of an inflatable ball. This time, he was not so lucky. Yikes. He did not survive. The ball was picked up afterwards by a boat, but his body wasn't discovered until June. Yikes. So all these cases of going over the falls we're talking about, that's the Canadian side, right? Yeah. Because the American side. Most of these people go to uh, do it over the horseshoe. Because, like, as I said, the horse, the American falls are really short. Right. They're really short. But they have a lot of boulders and stuff. So no one really would survive that. Right. That's what I was wondering about. That yeah. would be much harder, yeah. So, like, they're coming over the falls and going into that, like, deep pool and popping back up. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of people who have gone over the falls somewhat unintentionally. <laughs> um, so in 2003, a baseball player named Ed Delaney was swept over the falls. He had fallen from the International Railway Bridge after having been kicked off a night train for being drunk and disorderly and threatening passengers. That doesn't quite seem like a equal... What am I trying to say? It's not a commensurate pe uh, punishment for being drunk and disorderly. He was also threatening passengers, so they kicked him off the train. Yeah, but like to have to go over Niagara Falls in exchange for that asshole-ish behavior, I, I don't know if it's a fair deal. No, but I don't think they meant... It's not like they threw him <laughs> over the falls. They just kicked him off the oh, plane fair. and then he tried to probably walk down the bridge and fell fair. because he was drunk. <laughs> I would assume, they don't say, but I'm going to kind of do some sort of assuming that they probably kicked him out of the Niagara station. Yeah. <laughs> you know? People who are drunk don't make good decisions. Nope. Yeah, so there's a couple people. So on, uh, in 1960 in July, in July, a seven-year-old American boy named Roger Woodward was swept over the falls. Woodward, his sister Diana, and another person were in a 12-foot aluminum fishing boat powered by a motor which capsized roger who was wearing a life jacket and remained buoyant was rescued by the maid of the mist at the bottom of the falls 
and Deanne was pulled from the river before the falls, from the lip of the falls by two bystanders. Wow. And the guy who was driving the boat had died in the accident. Mm. But he survived and his sister survived. He's one of the few kids that have survived this. That must be on 19 terrifying to stand at the like to be at the lip of the falls. Like it, like every time I go, my favorite thing is to stand like as far forward as you can. And like you can kind of see Goat Island out there and it looks like it's moving kind of slow up near the front and up like that close to shore. But the thought of like just being stuck around that area like in the water. Oh my god. I don't know if I could ever. Because it's not moving. None of it's moving slow. They're all moving like super yeah, fast. Yeah, it's deceptive. It I don't know if I could ever recover from that experience. So, um, 1981, a, a 28-year-old resident of Toronto dropped her two-month son <gasps> over the railing and into the river, just up from the brink of the Horseshoe Falls. The body's boy was never found. She was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, but the charges were dismissed after she claimed she accidentally dropped the child after suffering a dizzy spell. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, you're never coming back from that either. Like, if that was a true accident, you're, you're like, you're not coming back from that. Uh, in 2009... On March 10th, an unnamed man attempted suicide over the falls. In the attempt, his clothes were ripped from his body and he suffered shock and a laceration on his head, but he survived. Mm. One of the articles I was reading that says that about 40 people commit suicide at the falls every year. Oh, hmm. you don't hear about them very often, though, if at no. all. Uh, in 2011, a unidentified woman was killed after she swept over Horseshoe Falls. She reports suggests that she appeared alive on approaching the brink, but was declared dead on the arrival of rescue boats. And in 2011, you might remember the Japanese exchange student who was swept over the falls when she had climbed over the railing yeah. uh, near the water's edge and was sitting on a pillar block. When she stood up, she lost her footing and fell over the edge into the Niagara River. And uh, her body was recovered uh, four days later. Wow. People stand behind the... Those guardrails are not up for decorative purposes. They have a function. A very important function. Mm-hmm. On 2012, an unidentified man in his early 40, 40s became the fourth person to survive an unprotected trip over the falls. But he deliberately indicated... Eyewitness reports indicated that he deliberately jumped... After climbing over the railing, he suffered broken ribs, a collapsed lung, and lacerations, but he survived. I wonder if that knocks the desire to kill yourself out of you. I don't like, know. Do you survive that and go, clearly there's a purpose and a reason to be here? Or do you just go, god damn it, I couldn't even get that right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's either one. It's right? got to be one Come two. to Jesus in some way, right? Yeah. Like. And then in 2017, an unnamed 10-year-old boy fell between 30, 60 meters uh, into the Niagara Gorge after losing his balance on a railing along the gorge. He was airlifted to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Mm. So this one is going to really, I think, get into your heart. So in 1827, William Forsythe, the hotel owner, bought purchased a schooner called Michigan. He filled it with a buffalo, two small bears, two raccoons, and a dog. Some reports say two foxes, 15 geese, and an eagle were also included. 
After the schooner was set adrift, the two bears jumped free and swam to Goat Island, but the rest of the animals, with the exception of the goose, perished going over the falls. It was like a messed up version of Noah's Ark. Yeah, but like a murdery version of it. (laughs) Smart on the bears part, though. Yeah. And then, uh, so I told you about the turtle and the cat... And then just two couple of uh, the inanimate objects. So a schooner went over the falls. It was a deliberate event that was originally scheduled to coincide with the first person, the Sam Patches stunt when he jumped into the gorge in 1829. Mm -hmm. However, the ship caught up on the falls whirlpools and rested on rocks in shallow water for months. Until the currents finally caught it and and broke it free, so instead of it going over in uh, in August, it did go over for many months. So, <laughs> oops, oops. <laughs> and then in 1837, on December 29th, the steamer Caroline was set alight and sent over the falls during the Upper Can- Canada Rebellion. The events were part of the Caroline Affair. Hmm. I know nothing of it. Wow. What is your history degree good for? I'll tell you, Andy, not a whole lot. (laughs) This is part of the larger problem of my life. (laughs) So, yes, um, that is all of the insane people that have gone over the falls. There's been a few people that have crossed the falls. Tightrope walking was apparently really popular at one point. Netflix. Again, I don't bloody know why. Um, with a bunch of people doing it back in the day and then uh, the Wallanda guy doing it in the 2010s at some point. Um, but yeah, the uh, I, I don't understand this this absolute like fascination with let's get into a barrel and try to kill ourselves. I realized I became an adult when I was watching a motorcyclist in germany take hairpin turns up and down a mountain going at speed and i realized i was an adult when i thought your mother would be really disappointed in you right now (laughs) and ever since then like i judge things by like would your mother be upset to see you do that yes then don't do it so like these dummies who mm-hmm. climb to the top of like the tallest buildings in the world, like free style and just like sit up there with their cameras and take selfies. I'm like, your mom would be really mad at you. Like really mad. Did you see the guy on top of the parapet? Yeah. Like, ugh. first off, you don't climb them because they are delicate and you will cause damage. Second of all, you don't climb it to fuck a girl in a Muslim country. Just throwing that out there. And, like, third, no, don't be dumb and gross. Like, you're just going to leave a spot up there that's never going to get cleaned. Like, come on. Now, they do claim that they didn't actually have sex. They just posed like that for the picture. But Yeah, the Muslim country is going to be real okay with the naked ladies running around. That's... Or even the naked guys. Like, no one needs to see peen if you don't want to see Yeah, but they're not... There's no morality police picking up guys in these countries. (laughs) Unless they're with guys. Yes. That's, yes. Sadly, yes. Uh, One note about the tightrope walkers. Apparently the wire walking craze emerged between 1859 and 1896. Okay. I get that this is before TV and they didn't have a lot to do, but holy fuck, people. (laughs) Like, get another hobby. And there is a 
One inexperienced walker slid down a safety rope and only one fell to his death at night under mysterious circumstances. So actually, there's a whole article that I'll pin at some point uh, this week about uh, that person was local. There's this whole like conspiracy theory around Ooh, his death. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, which I only read the beginnings of, and then I got sidetracked with something else. So that is my story of crazy nice. people. I don't know why they do it. I don't know, like, why other than, but it doesn't get you fame and fortune as the first person died in poverty. True. I only have two interesting stories about the falls. One of them is fact, and the other involves me. Um, I don't remember when it was, but the the story is there was a really really cold winter. And it created an ice dam further up the Niagara River before the falls, and it shut off the falls. There was a winter where just no water was going over because of this massive ice dam, and people were able to go down and walk around in the gorge, and they were able to pull out a bunch of uh, muskets from the War of 1812. Yeah, oh, cool. so it's only happened once in the last, like, gajillion years, but I really hope and pray that this whole global warming thing happens good enough that I get to witness the falls get turned off. Cause it's just like that ice dam just like stopped all the flow of water going down. Well, I was reading in one of the things that they do now for the hydroelectricity, they don't, they monitor the ice and they keep it from damn it because it'll also stop Let's, the electricity. Mm, God damn it. Right. <laughs> yes. Think of those, uh, you know, 308 houses that uh, won't get 308, 100,000. No, 3.8 million houses, sorry. (laughs) Houses that won't get That is like 308 Clark Griswolds I might buy, but we need a few more (laughs) on the jacket on that. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's it's basically a clean, it's as clean energy as you're going to get. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then... We lived in Toronto for a while in Ottawa. So my dad was a great fan of just driving for family trips. So we went to Niagara a lot. And further down Niagara River, down the gorge, uh, there is a cable car that you can take from one side to the other over the whirlpool, right? right? That entire situation, I'm just putting this together now, is probably the cause of my fear of heights. Because as a child... My parents would like shove me to the front of the the car to get like the best view. And I fucking hated it. Like every time I'd like try to like worm my way into the middle so I didn't have to look out. And I remember the one and only time I had night terrors growing up was a dream about that whirlpool and falling into it. And just like even now as like a 30 something year old, like I think back to that dream and just <sighs> get real upset over it. <laughs> It'll be okay. You're not going to fall into the whirlpool. Unless you... Do something dumb, like go over it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. No, interesting story. I'm I'm glad your your first idea didn't pan out because uh, that was interesting. So, my story this week, I don't know how we're going to link it to uh, Niagara Falls. So, uh, yeah, this will be fun. We'll, We'll have to spend some time trying to figure that out. So, for my story this week, uh, you might know this about me, Andy, but uh, I'm not a big fan of the kids. It's not really my my shtick. I'm, I'm happy to be an auntie and uh, my tante to a bunch of uh, adorable little children, but I also like the idea of giving them away to a responsible adult afterwards or when they get sticky or gross or have a poo blowout. Uh, so, 
I have kids and I also <laughs> thought of that. Yes, but you needed to make better life choices about five years ago. <laughs> that is true. Uh, so when I'm out and about, I oftentimes see kids and I think, what were you raised by wolves? I think we've all said that a time or two. And that line inspired my story this week, which is about feral children. I almost did that. I saw oh my god! So oh, I'm glad this wasn't like the first time where we overlapped a story because <laughs> I don't have a backup story prepared. <laughs> that wasn't the one I was struggling with, but I saw that and I was like, "Ooh, that'd be good." So for welcome later. to later. <laughs> so from Encyclopedia Britannica, there's an entry for feral children, and they are defined uh, this way. Feral children, also called wild children, are children who, through either accident or deliberate isolation, have grown up with limited human contact. There's an animal quality to them, which is why children raised by animals occurs so often in human uh, mythology and throughout human lore, as far back as Remus and Romulus, the the co-founders of Rome, who were supposedly raised by a she-wolf. Modern cases, though, are oftentimes used as a way for science to test the fundamentals of human development, especially when it comes down to establishing what's nature versus what's nurture in our development as humans. There's little documented evidence other than a few half-remembered stories before the 1600s, but then a string of stories come out of Europe uh, in that century. And uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, their entry says uh, this, Early descriptions of such children detailed their non-human qualities, running on all fours, foraging and hunting for food, exceptional hearing, and absence of language. As several such children were rescued from the wild and brought back into human society, their continued animalistic behavior coupled with a seeming inability to master language fascinated philosophers who began to wonder if such children actually belonged to a different species of the human family. So to unpack that, When science and medicine started being modernized in the 18th and 19th centuries and genetics, so think Mendelssohn, and evolution, think Darwin, became all the rage, feral children were a huge topic of interest and contemporary ones were studied quite um, in depth and historical records of these children were kind of brought to the fore and re-examined. Presently, most psychologists attribute the inability of such children to master language to their unique histories of survival outside of human society as a behavioral mechanism specifically adapted to their environment and circumstances, rather than a biological inability. Now, this is interesting because this line from Encyclopedia Britannica is pretty dated, I think, because as we'll learn later, uh, that's not in fact the case. Science thinks that there is a... um, a physical reason why these children who are isolated early on can't be adapted or can't adapt to modern civilization or back into civilization. So there's an interesting website out there. Fucking rabbit holes take you to like weird places and like point out weird little niche communities online. So there's this website called noisolation.com. And it's all about why you need to be a social person and have social interactions in your life. And they do look at um, isolation for um, how it affects children's mental health and development. So the article says that creating social relationships is fundamental to our human development because we're pack animals at the end of the day. That's still part of our evolutionary pieces that are still back in our lizard brains. When there's no exposure to human interactions during brain development, researchers have found that children have difficulty with education are more likely to be financially disadvantaged in adulthood 
and have more psychological issues throughout their lives. So the root of these problems is a simple fact that lacking social interactions in your early years impacts the development of the brain's structures. There's a scientific explanation that I understand most of, um, and this comes following early isolation experiments that were conducted on mice and monkeys, because most parents don't want to give up their children as a feral child experiment. I mean, there's some days where you're probably willing to hand it off to whatever God will take it from you, but... <laughs> no, I'm just thinking there's some parents that probably should have, because... Yeah. Yeah, those, like, really yeah. abuse cases. Uh, so the science explanation for what happens at this early stage is, researchers found deficits in the communication chains in a type of cell called... And here's where we learn why I'm a history student, not a science student. Oligodontrochytes. Uh, in other words, these cells had impaired neuron-to-neuron -neuron, uh, communications <clears throat> in the prefrontal cortex. The functions of these cells is dependent on social interactions to develop the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain associated with a variety of cognitive functions such as planning, high-level thoughts, and social interactions. So not having exposure to human society at crucial developmental stages messes with the body's nervous system, uh, the support cells for that. It increases susceptibility to stress hormones because the system is supposed to release stress-reducing hormones and not having those areas developed impedes that. And it shuts, it prevents the development of one of the hormone systems that's designed to force us to be willing to participate or engage in pack activities. So if you're not being stimulated in those proper regions at early windows in our development, they never, you, the hormones in your body never force you to go out and be social. So just like Andy's, let's talk about the, the cases that draw our attention. Um, I just have some fun cases to talk about, some in history and some more modern. <clears throat> so the first really famous feral child case was that of Wild Peter, who was described as a naked, brownish, black-haired creature. He was captured in Hanover, which is now uh, Germany, in 1724, and at that time he was thought to be about 12 years old. He couldn't talk, but he could easily climb trees, and he lived off of plants. When they tried to feed him bread, he refused, and instead he would go out to find green twigs, he would strip off the bark, and suck the syrup off of them. He eventually started to eat fruit and vegetables, but that was the extent of what he would eat from kind of human diets. He was a curiosity, and so he was presented at court where the elector of Hanover, who was George, kind of took a fancy to him. And so when he became King George I of England, he brought Wild Peter with him, and he was used there to entertain the courtiers. And so he was kind of trotted out as a jester, a court jester, where he was laughed at and not the best way to treat someone who had a rough start to life. There's some thought that feral children happen for one of two reasons. One, there's a breakdown in the family structure that forces them to be taken out of it. The other is that the uh, there's probably some sort of um, mental illness involved or learning development delay. And so they're kicked out of the family structure. And so modern historians think that Wild Peter probably had some sort of uh, developmental delay just based off of the symptoms described around him. And so they 
in essence, took a mentally challenged person and just laughed at them for fun. That's the 1720s for you. (laughs) So uh, Peter lived to be 80 years old, but in the 69 years that he spent living with people, he only ever learned to say the words Peter and King George. He never developed his language beyond that. My next story is really bad, and I'm saying that up front. It's hella racist, even by the standards of the age. Uh, so it's going to get real uncomfortable, and I'm going to chew out the, um, the website that posted it for that. But I'll explain that in a minute. So in 1731, the villagers of Songhi in France were surprised when a young woman between the age of 10 or 18, it was hard to tell, came into their areas. She was spotted wearing a tattered dress and animal skins and carrying wooden clubs and was described as being really strong. She even beat one of the village dogs to death uh, when it got too close to her with her clubs. When the villagers finally got her to come out of the woods, they found she spoke only in animalistic whoops and squeaks, preferred to eat raw meat, and would skin and eat prey animals as soon as she caught them. They taught her to speak French and got the following story out of her. She was originally from North America, but had been kidnapped there by a Frenchman, brought back to France as a slave, and then she had escaped. Now, the historical uh, assessment done says that she was most likely a Mesawaki Indian born in what is now Wisconsin. When she kind of re-entered society in France, she was baptized, where she lived out the rest of her life in a convent. So first off, racists. Secondly, for shame on history.com for including her story on a list of six famous children alongside five other kids who are actually feral children. She clearly had language abilities, clearly knew how to take care of herself and was able to uh, integrate back into society. So she was not a feral child. She was just a foreigner. But she appeared feral to the villagers of Songhi. And history.com was a real dick about it and continued that misnomer of calling her feral when in fact she was just a native american who was taken advantage of and speaking in her native tongue thank you whoops. animalistic weeks yeah whoops and so mouths. i included it in this telling to highlight the need to assess historical cases of feral children with a really big dose of modern common sense so like i was saying the the difference between what is um, a feral child created because the family network broke down and what is created because the family kicked out a child. So yeah, here I have the note about wild Peter um, being most likely um, having Pitt Hopkins syndrome, which is a rare neurological disorder characterized by learning disabilities and an inability to develop speech. So in this case, uh, history.com can uh, kiss my ass and learn to do better. Yes. You should send that to them as a review. Yeah. (laughs) Kiss my ass and do better. Uh, My last historical story to tell you about is actually the inspiration for the Mowgli character in Rudyard Kimpling's The Jungle Book Stories. It was a young boy named, uh, he was given the name Dina Sanuchar. He was first found in 1867 and was originally thought to be an animal sleeping in the mouth of a cave when he was first spotted in the Buland Shahar district of India. He was actually probably about six years old at the time and appeared to have been living in the wilderness for most of his life, having been with a pack of wolves taking care of him. Missionaries spent several years trying to rehabilitate him, 
but it never really worked. He always preferred to gnaw on bones and eat raw meat rather than take any cooked food. And when he passed away in 1895, he had never learned to talk, even with all the input from the missionaries. So rough, rough go. But like I said, um, uh, historians think that this was uh, Kipling's inspiration for the Mowgli character in the Jungle Books. Historical cases aren't the only ones, though. This is happening up into this day and age, sadly enough, if not uh, almost worse in a lot of ways, because we should definitely know better. But the first modern era story that I found uh, is, uh, this one is sad. Uh, It's about a young boy named, uh, who's given the name Gazelle Boy. And I'll explain why that uh, is the nomer that sticks with him. So in the 60s, anthropologist Jean-Claude Auger was traveling through the Western Sahara region of Africa. And the local nomads told him where he could find a human-like creature who was living with a herd of gazelles. So Auger went out looking for him. And when he finally spotted him, he described him as a naked child, quote, galloping in gigantic bounds among a long cavalcade of white gazelles. He walked on all fours but could stand on his legs, which made Auger think he had been lost around seven to eight months because he had learned to stand. He twitched his muscles, scalp, nose, and ears in response to the slightest noise, just like the rest of the herd of gazelles he was living with. He would eat desert roots with his teeth and appeared to be herbivorous apart from the occasional lizard or worm when the plant life was lacking. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. Uh, His teeth edges were level like those of a herbivore animal. So if you look like they're really flat from all the chewing and constant grinding that they do. They tried to catch him in 1966 using a net lowered from a helicopter but he was never caught and so was never removed from the herd. I have to say, if you're trying to capture what is an animalistic child using a big flying whirly bird loud machine and dropping a net, probably not going to work. That kid's probably going to no. take off as quick as he can. And he did. And so his story just kind of ends because he just disappeared and was never brought back into civilization. My next story is about John Sezubonia. So one day in 1991, Millie Seba was looking for firewood near her home village in Uganda. She went out further than usual and spotted a boy with a pack of monkeys. She went home, got a bunch of the villagers to come with her to see if they couldn't find this boy. And they chased him up a tree where they cornered him and then managed to catch him and bring him back into the village. A villager there identified John, who had last been seen in 1981, sorry, 1988, when he was two years old. That's when his father murdered his mother and disappeared. No one knew what happened to John until he was found in those trees three years later. When he was found, his knees were almost white from walking on them. His nails were long and curled, and he wasn't familiar with indoor living. The article I read said he wasn't house trained, but I thought that was a real pejorative way of saying indoor living <laughs> so once again do better <laughs> in later life john remembers his early days in the forest it took him a couple of days but finally a pack of five monkeys approached him offering roots and nuts sweet potatoes and cassavas 
they probably took a shine to him because of that group of five. There were also two young monkeys. So there would have been a maternal kind of mindset at the time. After about two weeks of being fed by them, the monkeys took him into their pack and he started traveling around with them. He learned to find food and climb trees. He seems to have adjusted well enough to being in human society again because in 1999 he traveled to Britain as part of the world-famous Pearl of Africa Children's Choir. So, bit of a good ending for John. Rough start. Um, Having made it to two with uh, his parents and kind of community raising him, I think it's probably why he was able to develop languages later in life because that window was still open uh, for the uh, part of the brain to develop. One of the most famous modern cases, however, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if you've heard of this one, is the story of Jeannie. And this is from an article on Psychology Today's website titled The Girl, or sorry, titled The Feral Child Nicknamed Jeannie. What makes this case so famous is that it has contributed to the scientific community on issues surrounding language and personality development in humans. And it's really been the the case that has set all of our understandings for how and why the human brain develops at early ages and languages are able to be learned and what happens in early cases of social social isolation. So this is where I tell you how poor Jeannie ended up in her case, in her situation, and it's rough. She was born to just terrible, horrible people in California in the 1950s, specifically 1957. Her father was extremely intolerant to loud noises and didn't want children, but he and his wife ended up having several, most of whom died from child neglect, and Jeannie was one of the few who survived. To limit Jeannie's impact on her father, she spent the first 13 years of her life in a homemade straitjacket strapped to a chair or a toilet. Yeah, in the dark back room of the home. She was never spoken to. Her parents never had any sort of vocal interactions with her. Any sort of... There was no attempt made to socialize Jeannie at all. When she made any sort of noise... Yeah. Fucking birth control, people. Just... I get that it's a 50s, yeah. but Jesus Christ. Uh, whenever she did make any noise, she would be severely beaten by her father with a baseball bat. When CPS finally did step in, and she was 13 at the time... She was basically a toddler. She couldn't move well because she had spent her entire life in a small room strapped to a chair most days uh, and definitely bound in a straitjacket. And she couldn't speak at all. Suzanne Curtis, who was a linguist, heard about her case and started working with her. And while Jeannie couldn't talk, Curtis realized that she was very intelligent and was capable of telling complex stories uh, through pictures. There's different parts of the brain that regulate the ability to tell language or to speak in languages and to speak in images. And so Jeannie was able to take random photos or random pictures, drawings, and arrange them in such a way that they would tell really complex stories to indicate that she was a very intelligent young woman, a young girl, but she was never able to vocalize it. Susan Curtis worked with her and eventually Jeannie was able to pick up some English But while she had a large vocabulary, she wasn't able to construct grammatically correct sentences. So, for example, and this is going to break your heart some more, she is recorded as having said, quote, Father hit arm, big wood, genie cry, not spit, father hit face, spit, father hit big stick, 
Father angry. Father hit genie big stick. Father take peace wood hit. Cry. Me cry. So again, if we're breaking down the brain, there's a section in the brain for language. Part of it is the vocabulary and part of it is the grammar piece of it. And because that part of the brain wasn't properly developed, the grammar is never, ever, ever going to be able to kind of sink in and be learnt and be taught. So the vocabulary can, but that piece of the brain is not developed to allow for the grammar to come through. You obviously can't conduct experiments on humans that mess with early development, but Jeannie's case provided the scientific community with a lot of information about how the human brain develops its languages and abilities. And it proves that there is a window of opportunity for developing the ability to use languages fluently. And you can always learn more languages later on in life because you are, the necessary pathways are already in the brain. But if those pathways aren't developed at the right stage, you'll never be able to learn any language properly. Uh, Jeannie's case is wildly um, documented. So just like go over to YouTube and look for documentaries about it. It is a really, really fascinating, interesting case. I believe Jeannie is still alive. I popped over to the Wikipedia website or webpage for her just to see what year she was born in. And there was no death uh, year noted. But um, because this was such a popular high profile case, um, she is a, a ward of the state. Uh, is living an institutional lifestyle. When Suzanne Curtis was done with her, uh, in terms of taking her as far as she could, she was cut out of their care plan and so kind of disappeared from Jeannie's life because the state saw no use for having her in it because she couldn't develop her further. So I saw one documentary once where they met up a bunch of years later and Jeannie obviously had a really big connection to her whether Jeannie is still alive or not I don't know like where she's living I'm not sure but um it's quite possible she's still alive but would be living a a supported lifestyle probably in an institution somewhere Jeannie's stories and those where children took on animalistic characteristics made me think of an experiment conducted by comparative psychologist Winthrop Niles Kellogg in the 1930s and no I didn't know the guy's name, oh but I knew what the experiment was, and that's how I found information about it. <laughs> so I found an article on the Smithsonian's website, and that's where I'm getting this information from, and the title gives it away. Uh, this guy simultaneously raised a chimp and a baby in exactly the same way to see what would happen. Spoiler alert, it was a shit show. Yeah. So in 1931, the Kellogg's, Gaia or Gua, the chimpanzee, in order to raise him alongside their son, Donald. The idea was to prove how environment influenced development, and the principal research question the Kellogg's wanted to answer were, could a chimp grow up to behave like a human or even think it was a human? They were inspired by the story of feral children, and obviously not wanting to create one by taking it away from its parents and isolating it, uh, the Kellogg's looked at their situation and wanted to see if it would work in reverse. So taking an animal out of its environment and putting it with a human environment to see if it could be created, to see if they could make a human out of it. Donald and Gua grew up together for nine months, and they were treated exactly the same way. They were tested for and observed for things like memory, reflexes, reactions to tickling, strength, problem solving, fear, play behavior, climbing, and obedience. And when I say they were tested for nine months. They were tested 12 hours a day, seven days a week for nine straight months. The monkey was, li- 
Yeah. Well, like the the chimp was living with the family. So it probably like if they're testing for play, it was probably seemed like it wasn't terribly onerous and scientific. But like, that is a really long research project to run. (laughs) At first, Gua did better than Donald's on a lot of the tests. But then he hit a wall that no amount of training or love could ever get over and his development plateaued. There's a summary of the experiment that appeared in the psychological record, and the entire thing was summarized thusly. Kellogg's experiment probably succeeded better than any study before its time in demonstrating the limitations heredity places on an organism regardless of environmental opportunities, as well as the development gain as well as the developmental gains that could be made in enriched environments. So basically, the experiment proved that you can never make an animal into a human. The brain just will not allow for that last hurdle over the the developmental plateau. So the same article indicates that the Kellogg's returned Gaia abruptly, which, rude, to the primary colony where they got him from, but it never said why. The Smithsonian posits three reasons for this. The first is that they were just exhausted of nine months of nonstop parenting slash experiments with him, but they kept Donald. So can't tell me you're going to give one up and because you're tired and keep the other, but whatevs. Second possible reason. Goya was getting stronger and less manageable and they feared for Donald's safety. So that's reasonable. But number three is the reason that I always heard when it came to the study. And it's the one that I think most likely what happened and that is that when Gaia hit his plateau and couldn't learn human languages Donald seemed to have done the same and instead of learning to speak he started imitating the chimp sounds so the Kelloggs probably realized oh fuck instead of creating a human we have created a chimp (laughs) and so Gaia's gotta go (laughs) so why are we so fascinated with these stories That's a question that Marianne Okoto asked in her article for The Guardian, Wild Stories, Why Do We Find Feral Children So Fascinating? Okoto is a documentarian who studied the phenomenon of feral children in the internet-enabled viral clickbaity era that we live in. They often emerge from situations in which there's been a family breakdown, so violence or alcoholism, drug addiction, or there's political or social unrest. So feral children often emerge from situations in which there's been a family breakdown. So violence or alcoholism, drug addiction, political or social unrest in the country makes the traditional family environment disappear. And suddenly the children are on their own, either out in the wilderness, or there's one case from Ukraine that I had and took out. A young girl named Oksana, whose parents were alcoholics and wouldn't or couldn't care for her. And she ended up being raised by the village dogs and living out back like behind the house in a kennel another oh god heavily studied case so if you hit up youtube documentaries you'll find a half dozen of them i'm sure the children involved in these cases have usually physically adapted to their environment so they may look or act more like the creatures around them and that makes total sense because we're pack animals we try to fit in with those uh, that we're around one of the main things that we see with these children is that they don't display normal human traits even something as simple as making eye contact. That's a learnt trait. How many times has your parents had to say to you, look at me or look at that person while you're talking to them? Yeah, because... Oh my God, I say it to Elizabeth constantly. Yeah, it's a trait that you have to learn because if you don't learn it, 
you're a socially awkward person. Like that's how you're perceived. And there's something unsettling about someone who won't look at you while they're talking to you. These stories capture our attention because they're the opposite of what we would expect. They're unusual and strange. And for the most part, children are protected and cherished in our society. And feral children demonstrate the exact opposite of that happening. So as much as I don't like children, and as much as I enjoy a child-free lifestyle, I am still conscious of every child in my vicinity that I come into contact with. So walking down the street, I'm making sure a kid's not going to jump out in front of a car without noticing it. As much as I speed, I avoid doing that around school buses. I will wave to babies when they wave at me at stores. Like, we are just conscious of children in our society and want to protect them to a certain level. So feral children are a demonstration of the complete underpinning and breakdown of this almost most fundamental part of our society. Okota says that there are dangerous consequences to casting feral children as something other than human. She says, quote, Globally, disabled children are less likely to have access to education or health care. Even in the semi-secular, semi-scientific West, a disabled child in three or four t- is three or four times more likely to be the victim of violence or abuse than a non-disabled peer. So these children either are put out for their disabilities or by being isolated become disabled. And what Okoda is saying is that we can't see them as non-human or as animal because they're already predisposed to be poorly treated by society at that point whereas they need the most support. The creation of feral children is an instance where society has failed and the normal order has broken down. And in the closing line of her piece, Okota writes, quote, will remain captivated by feral child stories. The monster within, the noble savage, the fascinating freak at the end of humanity. But when we read those feral stories and fail to see the harm, as well as the hair and howling, we become the monsters. So if society produces a feral child... We are all at fault for that, and we should all take the blame and uh, make better life choices and do better for the next time around. That was my trip down a very depressing rabbit hole. Uh, Really bummed me out. And uh, I mean, I still think you need to take care of your shits in a restaurant and don't let them scream and disrupt my lifestyle. But they're learning. They're being socialized. Maybe I'll have a bit more compassion moving forward. I don't know. (laughs) So that was a real downer. in order to oh end on a Jesus. lighter note, would you like to start our new segment? No, but it's fucking Florida, <gasps> so it's going to be real easy one? to find one. <laughs> so Andy had this great idea the other day uh, that Florida is the gift that keeps on giving. And so why don't we wrap up every episode in the tradition of the Florida man story that I told a few weeks ago and bring you the week's bonkeriest story out of Florida about a Florida man or a Florida woman. So that's what we're going to start doing. What you didn't hear, because Andy's going to cut it out, because Andy's practicing um, with the the editing and is editing this week. What you didn't hear was our discussion as we found this article to share with you. So the headline is delightful. Uh, Quote, Florida man arrested for shoplifting at Kohl's after job interview. So he had just finished interviewing at the store and uh, thought, you know what? This this uh, this is a great time for that five finger discount, and so he's charged with retail theft after deputies say he tried to shoplift shoes just minutes after he left a job interview at the store. No, he went straight from the HR not office. Get you hired. On his way out, spotted two pairs of Nike shoes without security tags and just couldn't resist the opening. He grabbed a cold shopping bag from a previous purchase out of his car and put both pairs of shoes into it, 
and tried to leave the building and he didn't get very far. Oh, it's this is good. Quote, a loss prevention worker was watching him the entire time and called the sheriff's office to report the crime in progress. He was taken into custody in the parking lot and told investigators he was going to give the shoes to his mother. The CBC or sorry, the CBS uh, affiliate reporting on this out of Miami says, quote, obviously he did not get the job. That's like the thank you, Wikipedia, for saying that (laughs) William read something yeah. junior yes we needed that clarified of william there. red senior so uh once again florida coming through in the most bonker of ways <laughs> just the title a drunk florida woman is asked to leave red lobster so she responded by allegedly I grabbing a live lobster straight into the tank and bolting it makes me think of that old simpsons episode with the line like for once i just want to be called sir without hearing you're making a scene added on to it <laughs> all right yeah. so uh if there's no other rabbit holes to share with everyone um do you want to tell people where they can find us so you can find us uh, on our website which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com our show notes will be on the website and you can find our blog um the, this week i just at least just posted my uh, blog on mm-hmm. Christmas movies and what makes a Christmas movie. Uh, you can email us and tell us how I'm a horrible person. Thank you, random person on Facebook this week who said oh. I was a horrible person. <laughs> I was like, what asshole did that to elf. you? And then I remembered it was me. No, it wasn't. So I had posted, yeah. I think it was like the rebel was talking about like Christmas movies and unpopular opinions. And I said, I don't like Elf. Like, I actually hate that movie. And someone's like, you're a horrible person. And I'm like, I remember well, like, thanks, cry face responding to that and thinking that in my head. So I just assumed it was me who did it. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can email us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. Maybe to tell me that you also dislike Elf. There's lots of people out there. Uh, Twitter, you can find us at Rabbit Holes Pod, Facebook, Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. Yeah. Uh, so if you like what we're doing and want to support us, you can uh, find us on Patreon and become a patron. You can either search us on patreon.com or connect via the support tab on the website. We have lots of fun stuff coming for all of our tiers. Or you can rep us out in the uh, big bad world by buying some of our fabulous merchandise off of redbubble.com or find the merch tab on our website. You can also give us a fantastic rating on iTunes, Mm -mm. Stitcher, I'd say Google Play, but it doesn't let you do that. Uh, or wherever you get this podcast to help with our visibility. This is our last non-themed episode for the year. We only have one more episode this year. Uh, and our next one is going to be a Christmas episode. <laughs> I think I have an idea. I've got to see if I can flesh it out. But I figure if I can flesh out ranch flavoring, I should be able to do this one. We'll have to see. All right. So that is it from us for this week. Uh, enjoy the the ramp up to the holidays. We look forward to seeing you again on the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, and the only thing left to do tonight is to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.